the question of American elites. This is what we're going to talk about today. I'm Wolf Tyvey, Editor-in-Chief of Palladium. I'm joined, as usual, by Ash Milton. Hi, everyone. So, the American elite. People talk a lot about the elites of, you know, in this country and elsewhere. You know, people usually in the context of complaining about it. Sometimes in the context of, you know, what they should do or who they are, these kinds of things. We want to, obviously, this is something we do as well at Palladium. The approach we try to take is, let's just be clear about the fact that there is this hierarchical structure to society. There are elites at the top who have the most power. It's really their job to make sure society goes well. And we're going to speak clearly and openly about that in ways that, for some reason, other people don't. And, but we're not going to do that in the context of whining about it. It's it's just the nature of the thing. That's how it is. But maybe we can critique it and find or critique aspects of the current instantiation where you know something's wrong, the elites aren't doing their job in this regard or that regard, or maybe we can do better here, or hey, this is actually really good. Um, that kind of commentary, I think, is totally something we like to do. But we wanted to have a more general discussion about this topic. Who are the American elites? How do we think about that? Where should we be going with that whole question? So it, it, it is this interesting question to start with, which is maybe a provocative question, which is, does America even have elites? You know, from one perspective, from a sort of theoretical perspective that takes elites for granted, you would say, of course, America has elites. There's always someone who has the most power which is true, there's always someone who has the most power. Then there's the question, though, of, you know, what if what if uh, you just chop the head off of, of a pyramid? Does that mean the pyramid has a top? It, it's like, yeah, there's still something at the top or something at the sort of uppermost extremity, but that doesn't mean it's actually a top. And similarly, in America, we had quite a bit of upheaval in the mid-20th century and early 20th century that can be summarized with America lost its previous elite. Then there's this question, did anyone replace them as a true elite or do we just have an upper middle class? So this is connected to this idea, um, Natalia Deschamps' article on the real problem at Yale is not free speech, where she characterized a lot of elite pathology right now as people pretending not to be elites, but rather, you know, upper middle class or, or even sometimes oppressed when they are in fact, upper middle class and, or, or presumably upper class. But what if that's not just an act? What if that's actually the situation? America doesn't have an upper class. America has an upper middle class that perhaps has too much money, but they know they don't have class and they know they don't really have power. So they call themselves upper middle class because they don't want to be mistaken for actual elites because, you know, there are problems with um, being seen as having more power than you do because everyone will expect things of you. And so there's there's sort of the, that's the charitable reading is, in fact, America doesn't have an upper class. And when people call themselves upper middle class, even though they have millions of dollars the, or billions, you know, hundreds of millions, 
Um, but when people call themselves upper middle class, maybe that's actually a truthful statement of the situation that, that they know they are not actually upper class or elites. And so this is, this is this provocative statement of maybe America doesn't even have an elite. On the other hand, there's always, you might think, okay, there's always someone in society who has all the power, who has most of the power. And there's always, there's a lot that these people who have tons of money or other forms of power, there's a lot that people can do and, and do do to exercise that power on society. And so like, what could it mean that they're not really elites? These are interesting questions. I'm hoping to discuss these on this podcast and get some clarity on it. But I'll just start with that provocative statement of America has no elites and the counterpoint. No, of course, America has elites. There's all these oligarchs and so on who are actually wielding power. So, Ash, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this and then we can get into a back and forth discussion and just try to figure out what's going on with this whole question. So I think the America only has an upper middle class thing is interesting because it kind of makes us ask the question, okay, well, what do we mean by middle class? Like, why are they not elites? What is the difference between these two things? And if we think about, you know, middle class people, right? these people, these are people who are professionals, right? Maybe they have a skilled trader, maybe they're white collar or something. They live in, you know, in, in American context, they live in a suburb, they attend nice schools, May, maybe they're part of like lo- local social organizations, if they're very publicly spirited, maybe they end up as like the town mayor or something. If they're living in a city, maybe they end up on some like prestigious school board. There, there are all these kind of social institutions they might participate in. But overall, they, they are in professions that generate wealth, which they use for their own private advancement, right? Their own lives, their families. And to the degree that middle-class people participate in broader society, it, it's at a more localized level, right? It's it's the neighborhood or it's the homeowners association. Maybe it's kind of like a city-level thing. If a middle-class person is involved in the political sphere, it is in a localized way. Anything beyond the local, they are usually not in leadership positions. And what that means is, is that middle-class is akin to something like your your domain of ownership, right? You, the domain over which you exercise power is localized. And the the acknowledged sort of obligations and responsibilities of wealth, you know, of, of the wealth that you have and of the money you make are very personalized. You know, I think middle class people don't have really expectation that they are going to be kind of moving and shaking society with their personal wealth, right? You know, uh, obviously they pay their taxes, right? Middle class people pay taxes. It's kind of like socially praiseworthy uh, if, if, you know, if if they donate charitably or or if they kind of like try and support something with their money. But it's not expected, right? You are not a bad person if you kind of just pay your taxes and your mortgage and, you know, take your, your holiday to Mexico or something every year. And uh, maybe send your kids to like a, a nice but not rich private school. You know, this is what is expected of you. Your domain of power is very localized. Your responsibilities are very personal. I think this is not true for elites. I think that when we think of elites, we think of people who first, their domain is, is essentially the level of their society as a whole. And the responsibilities are not purely personal. Now, sometimes that's by force of custom. 
Sometimes it's by force of kind of social norms. Sometimes it's by force of law. Sometimes it's by force of sacred obligations or something. It's usually a mix of, of a bunch of those things. But they're, the obligations they have over their wealth and, and whatever power they have are not individual. It is expected by an elite person and their peers that they are going to use their power, right? Again, their domain that kind of expands to society at large in certain ways. So maybe that's like a good frame to start with as to middle class versus elites and therefore why police or why elites are politically consequential. Yeah, actually this is this is a really good definition. So to just restate that, what we have is a distinction between local and personalized zones of power or zones of influence or domains or empires, like local personalized empires versus society-wide monopolies in some aspects. There's these two poles that I, I think it's fairly clear what that looks like. You know, if you're acting as a, you know, someone acting on a personal logic where your mode of existence is essentially a commodity, you don't have a monopoly over something that is society-wide. You don't have the monopoly and therefore responsibility over something that's society-wide. So it's like, even if you have $100 million, you know, you're investing, you've got your family office, there's there's people working to make sure this money keeps growing. You use, you use the money, you have your palace, you have your local circle of friends, you know, you've got your yacht. Until you get to the point of being a player at the top level where you are sort of slotting in in a live player agency sense into the overall top level game, then you're still in some sense middle class. And then at the top, you have things like, well, you know, I control this. I, I have this powerful network. And sometimes these, these things are like very, very opaque, like what exactly this elite person's job is. It might be, oh, they have a particular network of friends that they're able to connect, but it's it's something that's significant at the top level of society such that, you know, them holding up that domain well and, and, and using it in accordance with society's interests is very significant to how well society does overall. And not necessarily like very significant in the sense that if they don't do it, the whole thing blows up, but, but in the sense that, you know, there's noticeable effects if that person, you know, doesn't, doesn't hold up that aspect. So this is an interesting definition. I don't think it's, it's necessarily the best definition, but I think it's an interesting definition, a distinction between local personal power, which is sort of the more middle-class thing and monopolistic society-wide power where where the service offered is more unique and that's more like elite so this is interesting but i think i think you can imagine all sorts of players who are they they've got their unique skill they've got their unique domain that they're doing but maybe that domain isn't important enough or isn't central enough to be considered truly part of the elite and then there's also the question of Okay, but if it's just these these domains, these sort of globally significant domains of power, then what does it mean to have a coherent or incoherent elite? Is it just about the relationships between those people? Maybe it is. But is there is there also questions of ethos? 
Is there actually a culture of eliteness? So these are things, you know, at times in the past, for example, before the mid 20th century, America had what is now sort of so-called the, the WASP aristocratic culture. Um, people call them things like Boston Brahmins and so on. There was this culture of people who had significant, who had and maintained significant wealth, but what they were doing also got a lot into this kind of public life stuff where they would be, they would end up being these significant political players uh, or behind the scenes forces. But there wasn't just, it wasn't just a bunch of individuals who happened to have large amounts of power. It was a whole culture of, of people who would kind of have rituals among themselves and have, have uh, a whole lifestyle that went along with it you know, manners of dressing, manners of speaking, what church you go to, how you, how you marry, how you live. There's, there's a whole culture there. And now I think, so if you look at things nowadays, so back on the kind of America doesn't have that anymore, uh, take, you don't have as much of that anymore. And, and so far as you do, it's kind of collapsed as far as I can tell. And you rather what you have is you know, everybody sends their kids to Harvard. Everybody who's sort of wealthy and smart and significant enough sends their kids to Harvard and they get trained in kind of being the managerial class, um, you know, working at, at Goldman Sachs and, and uh, McKinsey, just like everyone else. And you don't get trained in kind of existing above and outside established institutions. You don't get trained in being a live player. You don't even get trained in, in any sort of aristocratic inheritance. And so, you know, again, this is to the point that maybe maybe we just don't have an upper class anymore. And I'm not sure that the definition, like the definition of like significant owned power at the top level or at some monopoly level, I'm not sure that overcomes that problem. Like you look at Elon Musk, for example, Elon Musk, you know, in some ways, definitely elite, and in other ways, kind of an outsider. You know, he's got his very significant rocket company and electric car company and so on, but those things are not part of the regime or they're not part of a ruling culture. So if you had a bunch of such people, and I think, I think these are the most significant examples right now in America is people like that, even things like George Soros, like he's also not really a representative of any you know, pre-existing elite culture or, or you know, elite culture that has come into existence. It's more like, yeah, you just got these oligarchs. They can sort of get along sometimes, but they've kind of got their own things going on. Yeah, although he's certainly better integrated than than Elon is at this point. Yeah, maybe it's in some ways. I mean, Elon is like very integrated into the weapons establishment and and, you know, uh, I think even in some cases a more a more popular character, but I think less powerful. I, I think they both have I think they both have their domains. Yeah, let let me make an application with with, with okay, the kind of model earlier. So um, okay, we, we we kind of have these these two fronts. Um, one one is the the sort of what is the size of your domain in really of, of you know your domain of action in relation to your society, and second is in that position, what kind of obligations beyond yourself do you have 
with the power and the wealth and so on that you possess. And again, when I say obligations here, I don't mean in terms of like some abstract moral thing. I mean, by virtue of, of the social politics around you, what is expected of you, right? Sociological duties, you could maybe say. I think one interesting that comes out of this is that actually elites are shockingly unfree. Obviously, on the one hand, if you have a lot of money, sure, you know, you, you can have your private island or you can go to Burning Man. You can probably do kind of a lot of legal drugs and get away with it. If you do anything publicly with your wealth, it is going to be scrutinized. It's going to be scrutinized by those around you because if you do something with like $10 million, it's probably not that consequential. If you do something with a billion dollars, it's consequential is going to be socially consequential. And if you build an institution worth tens of billions or hundreds of billions of dollars, then you are building society-shifting institutions, for better or worse. You now have a completely different set of problems, which is that when you mobilize your wealth, right, when you mobilize your personal empire in any given direction, you are now in the realm of politics. And so I think that that is like an important distinction. And to, to move that kind of into the sort of stuff that we've talked about in our Yale and Harvard and so on articles, I think, you know, I think across societies, elites, social norms and expectations are, are very entrenched and very hard to shift, right? And very difficult to deviate from. And so if you live in a society where the social script is now firmly the 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 Harvard hothouse social script, right? Like the McKinsey consultancy social script. When that has become dominant and all those people that we could plausibly call elites are either themselves, you know, they've adopted that script or all their friends have. The fact that these scripts are embedded and that elites are powerful doesn't mean that like the, the fruits of it are necessarily useful for society, right? In fact, it's worse because if you have a very kind of degenerated elite culture, it's the fact that it's so difficult to change could be extremely bad for society, right? Like you, everyone individually might know something is wrong or that they could do things differently, but no one kind of has the wherewithal to do it differently. And, you know, if you try, you are now going to possibly commit a political crime sometimes, right? Or at least a social faux pas. And I, I think that that kind of leads to why it's very difficult to change these things when when we're in a kind of like degenerated social script scenario like we are now. Yeah. And I mean, even if the social scripts aren't specifically degenerated relative to what they were for those specific people, we have a situation where you kind of got the dying out of whatever was the previous elite culture and the like very high rise in wealth inequality bringing up people who were not trained with any kind of elite culture, who are, were trained with essentially an upper middle class outlook on things. You know, they come from those families. Like you say, it's very hard to shift that once it's in place in your soul. And, you know, you give that person $100 million. And does that, does that suddenly turn them into an aristocrat? No, it certainly does not. It might make their actions more significant because they can take bigger actions. But what, like what we might be seeing with rising wealth inequality is just there's a lot more power in the hands of people who were not trained to use power. They don't have the, they don't come from that kind of ethos. Like there is actually a culture of what it would mean to be a responsible elite. 
and they don't have that. So I want to I, I want to amend something you said though, which is about the significance of moving around various amounts of money. Uh, so I'm going to give some counterexamples. One, I think if you know the right people and allocate, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars in the right place at the right time with the right people, that is an extremely significant action. And if you buy a $500 million yacht, that is not necessarily a significant action. So it's a lot more about how you're spending the money and who you know than it is about how much money you're spending. So, so I, think, I think it really does come down very significantly to what institutions do you exist within? What culture are you acting on? How do you spend your money? How do you think about spending your money? And it's not just your money. It's what kind of power do you have? Like the intangible sort of network power that can't be quantified, but is very significant. Um, there's all those aspects to the thing. I think the the focus on money is very silly. You know, money is is this kind of lubricant that that correlates with other interesting things. Like you know, if you find a bunch of a bunch of metal that is is using a bunch of lubricant and is justified to, to have a bunch of lubricant, you know, it might be an engine. Um, but it's not the lubricant that's sort of like making the thing happen. And I feel the same way about money. Money is, is this, it's, it's like this, this accounting trick that we use to facilitate transactions between more substantial things. And, and, and sometimes you can get very little, so very efficient actions. Yeah, no, I, so, so I agree that, that you, you can have this kind of like high financial efficiency, um, let, let me clarify, though. So w- when Jeff Bezos makes a decision about how he is running Amazon, it's a political decision, right? Because his decisions are affecting the operations of one of the kind of most powerful economic institutions in, in America, right? That is the kind of decision I'm talking about here, not like I'm, I'm building a house somewhere or something like that. But even that there's this limitedness to that domain. Like suppose you wanted to take Amazon, you know, extremely powerful business or extremely expensive business, um, very significant. You suppose you wanted to kind of milk it for its political impact. What would you actually do? You know, you, you would, you could kick people off the platform. You could change prices. You could, you know, change how workers are treated. You could put different branding on the thing, like, like, you know, attach propaganda ads to things. There's, there's a few things you could do, but like a lot of those come at the expense of the, the fundamental logic of the business. It's, it's a very significant thing. You know, this, this logistics company that can deliver all of our stuff. Thank you, Lord Bezos. But like, it's not, politically that significant if it's not actually interfacing with political variables. So what is a political variable? And this comes to sort of my objection to classifying Elon Musk as, as like a paragon of, of current elites as well, because, you know, he's again, this sort of peripheral character who's, you know, if, if SpaceX wanted to be used politically, what would that mean? That's, it's not that significant, right? Whereas something a lot less you might think like less powerful, like suppose 
someone with Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos level power over their institution ran the California Department of Education. It's like maybe on the same scale of impact in some sense, but also now you're talking about a very, very different amount of power and in a much more core area. You know, if you're able to, assuming you could actually run the thing well, right? It's not just some quagmire that you're that you're stuck to, but like if you could actually run the California Department of Education like Amazon, you know, this well-oiled machine that, that can teach the students whatever you want, that you the, the the political significance of that is immense, right? It it's you would you would have enormous amounts of power, and then of course you know you have all kinds of constraint on you because of that power um, from the press, from people putting pressure on you, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Maybe that's why none of nothing like that is happening is because anyone who gets into those positions ends up get you know any power they accrue. It, it instantly gets sort of torn apart into this sort of bureaucratic gridlock. And you, you can see this more significantly, I think, with Facebook and Twitter, where Facebook and Twitter are much more easy to see how those things can become serious political power, you know, in, the, in their ability to boost certain things or suppress certain things, you know, kick people off the platform, make, make it either... Uh, a safe space for people to anonymously run their mouths or not, you know, very significant uh, f- effects of any of those choices. And, and, and as a result, I think what you see is the actual political machines moving in and getting control of those aspects of those businesses. So you look at the trust and safety councils or whatever they're calling them these days uh, at Facebook and Twitter and, you know, it's staffed by a bunch of quote unquote experts and people from DC and so on. It's not like a bunch of engineers who report to Zuckerberg are are deciding what everyone can say. It's rather that's this convenient fiction used by these these thought control bureaucrats to to maintain control of the the part of the, the moderation part of of the organization and so again you have this case where as soon as someone had any actual power they're like oh no it's a hot potato i don't want to hold the hot potato in today's culture i want to pass it off to this bureaucratic managerial culture that kind of you know they learned some things in school about how power is supposed to be used and you know, what it means for there to be a safe internet and blah, 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 bis- disinformation, etc. Um, so there you have a concrete case of the system sort of being the opposite of these powerful live player individuals getting control of large amounts of power, of actual power. And so maybe this is an aspect of this question, is the question of whether you actually have individuals with what you know one way i heard it put recently is counterfactual impact can they do this thing or the other thing or do they only have power to pass the thing off to the bureaucracy and if everyone is passing the thing off to the bureaucracy who's actually running the country is there anyone even running the country or is the whole thing on autopilot and in that case you know if if that is the case, which I sort of suspect that it is, there's a few 
live players here and there, but but you know maybe by and large the thing is actually eaten up by this bureaucratic logic. Is that sustainable? I don't think it's sustainable, but it's sort of like, what does that mean? Does that, is that an elite? Is that what we're talking about when we talk about elites? Is it useful to talk about elites when you have that kind of system? So these are sort of questions that are raised by, by these logics. It's, it's, it's interesting you mentioned the bureaucratic mindset there. I think that we're, we've seen something interesting here where you can kind of imagine, you know, that, that even the, the, the focus on money can have a, sort of you know functional method right okay you need to get things done you're you're trying to achieve these goals you know you're trying to build this kind of organization you you know you need to have a certain amount of money to do those things okay makes sense there there's a thing you sometimes hear about government bureaucracies right and, and this is going back decades that the way that you measure the success of a bureaucracy is the size of its budget not not <laughs> yeah. the the output right yeah the output's usually hard to quantify Yes, yeah, the outputs are to quantify, and and in fact, maybe we don't even want to quantify them, right? Like, do we really want to know everything that uh, Department of Defense is doing, right? Do we really want to know everything the military is doing? Not really. And uh, sometimes it's just boring, right? Like, who really cares about every program that kind of, you know, uh, departments committed to, like, housing or to financial regulation are doing? But if they're if they have large budgets... We know they must be valuable, right? And the way this translates into kind of political action is that you 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 raise the budget for your kind of like pet priorities, right? Like you increase aid to the countries that you like, or you know if, if you're if you like healthcare is your thing, you know maybe you throw a a couple more hundred mil into healthcare or something like that. But the money is basically a signaling tool. And it's a very degenerated signaling tool because there's often not actually anything going on. And so we're we're actually seeing that spread in a couple of weird ways. So first, I'll claim here that tech has a huge problem with this, right? You know, we've all seen these startups that have a high value, right? As, as companies, they've gotten a lot of investment and uh, maybe they even have like high high cash flows or something, but it's too much money, right? Like they, they don't, they spend it on nonsense. You write off nonsense expenses, but it must be a valuable company because look, they have a high valuation. But more importantly for our discussion, you have seen this happen with elite institutions as well, right? And I'm thinking here about like the way that foundations operate, for example. Now, part of this is obviously that foundations are often the way that you can protect your wealth from taxation, but uh, even so, right, how many really functional kind of NGO style institutions do we hear about? I think the fact that a lot of these things get viewed mainly as vehicles for moving money around shows that they are not being thought of as vehicles for doing anything else, right? And to the extent that you have an elite that thinks primarily in monetary terms, right? So so earlier, I'm kind of bringing up up like, the, the money aspect here kind of as a measure, not, not as the thing itself. But to the degree that you now have elites thinking purely in financial terms, they, you know, this is kind of another way maybe that they have become middle class, right? Because I think the middle class does think in terms of money because they don't have usually a very, a very stable social position. 
they're often worried about either climbing the ladder or falling back down. They think in terms of money. This is a middle class trait. You're concerned about your income, your house, your car, you know what school you're going to. And so to the degree that elites are now think primarily like this and primarily see these kind of even privileged institutions as ways for moving money around rather than sort of exercising their position and, and you know, moving society in, in, in their preferred directions. This is a middle class brain that, that they now effectively have. And so if you have a, an entire society operating on the middle class brain, you're going to have a society that is, you know, it feels itself under threat all the time. It's kind of got this like social climber mentality, but not really on the ladders that matter, more on the kind of like signaling ladders, right? And it is also going to be a society that does not think in terms of kind of whole of society advancement. It thinks in terms of personal, uh, like personal domains. So one one significant difference between, you know, what you might call middle class, what you might call elite is middle class people don't build their own institutions. They don't build their own ladders to climb, whereas at least in from a natural law perspective, so to speak, the, the elite has to be building and maintaining society's institutions or else they will decay and become mush. And so you need the elite to actually be building institutions. So, you know, when when you have everybody kind of climbing all the existing ladders, that's a very bad sign because that means that people aren't aren't out there interacting with nature, actually built or, or interacting with at least social reality, uh, societal reality, uh, building their own institutions and ladders to climb. And so that's that's an interesting difference. And then on your point about like middle class mindset being about money and then kind of financialization, um, you know, a pithy way to say this is is that the financialization of the economy was the pauperization of the elite. Like they, they actually got turned into shopkeepers that like de- demoted essentially. Right, right. We actually got a nation of shopkeepers. Yeah, it's like you actually got demoted from aristocrat to shopkeeper. It's like now you're now you're labeling laboring like some kind of plebe, um, you know. And, and oh yeah, your labor has a hundred million dollar price tag attached to it, but also it's still just labor. And uh, I, yeah, I find that funny. But on on the point about like institutions versus money, which is I think a very significant aspect of this whole discussion um, and the question of the quantification of bureaucracies. You know, I was thinking, I said, well, it's not very, it's not easy to quantify the output of a bureaucracy. And I know, you know, I can imagine a bunch of people in the back of the audience, you know, standing up and yelling at me about how you actually can quantify things. You need to quantify things to, to like get your strategy straight and all of this. And like, I agree with that, but let me, let me rephrase. It, you do, there are not commensurable quantifications of bureaucracies. They are incommensurable. So how you might measure the FDA, and whether that's you know how many things are approved or how many lives are saved uh, from particular types of medical horrors or uh, disease horrors or, you know, health or whatever, like you can come up with some set of metrics for the FDA, those aren't going to apply to the EPA, right? Or they're not going to apply to, to 
the military or or labor regulators or whatever, right? Like, so each bureaucracy has its own, it, it necessarily has its own strategic outputs and you can quantify those, but they are different. And so the, the choice of which ones to value and what the scale should be and like what counts as performing well and what does not is, you know, again, you're back into this, this issue of having to make qualitative judgments of what things are important and what this thing is for and how much that's worth and how much money is needed to accomplish that particular purpose. And that's, so you can't escape from the fact that these institutions are addressing qualitative problems, uh, at least to some very significant degree, like in the sense that it's this thing that can't be ignored. And so this connects to me for this to this question of the overall financialization of the economy. The thing I was saying earlier with kind of people thinking maybe too much in terms of money, not enough in terms of who you know, network sort of in financialized terms, network capital and uh, you know unique value, the institutions, the, the more the substance that isn't the lubricant, that stuff we don't think about as much as we think about money in the current dominant culture. And that means that we're going to be bad at thinking about qualitative matters like government. If government is a qualitative matter, because you've got a whole bunch of complex things going on that you have to make qualitative judgments about, and maybe you can, there are some quantitative things that you can use to to integrate between these perspectives, but they're really, you can't escape that qualitative aspect. If, if we're sort of trained as a whole culture to be quantitative within existing institutional frameworks and not qualitative outside of existing institutional frameworks, then we're going to have a real bad time at government. So this is a short statement of our problem as of the middle of the 20th century, which is that we've become increasingly quantitative within established institutional frameworks. And this relates to elite culture in general. It relates to that collapse of maybe a more aristocratic form of elite culture, the rise of a more financial elite culture to the extent that the thing can be called elites. I'm going to leave that as a summary of, I think, our situation with respect to government and elite culture. One of the things that's come up implicitly a few times that we need to make explicit is the question of who is an elite? What is the definition? Actually, it's come up somewhat explicitly, but I think we need to talk about that more. It's who is an elite? What does that mean? And I think questions of semantics are always like, once you get into that territory, unless there really is just an established, really good definition that you can work with, where all the words mean the same thing, then what you're actually talking about is how are we acting on this and how does it relate to other things we care about? And so let's talk about how we're acting on it and how it relates to other things we care about. So how are we acting on this? One way to answer the question of are there elites is, Are there people you could go and talk to and persuade of some different manner of doing things whereby if they were persuaded, things might actually change? And 
That is an important question. In some systems, that is definitely the case. There is, you know, Napoleon, you know, you go and you convince Napoleon and you convince him to do things differently. If he is convinced to do things differently, you get actually different outcomes. You convince George Washington not to um, put the crown back in the gutter, for example, but rather put it on his head or do other things, then you get a very different result. You convince the early founding fathers of America to do something different, you get something very different. And this, so this is maybe another operationalization of that question of sort of counterfactual agency. And, you know, if they were convinced of a different path, could things go differently? So that's one question. And I think on that question, there aren't that many people who you could convince to act outside of the existing social scripts to bring into to bring in a new one. Or, or maybe it's a combination of the agency that people have combined with the problems that we're trying to solve. But I think the problems that we're trying to solve can't really be solved in that manner. Not because people are like, you know, too far gone or can't possibly be convinced, but because it's not clear that there's anyone who, if convinced, would be able to act. There are a few around the edges, but I don't think that they're the central ones that are really representing that sort of central elite culture. And so maybe one way to think about that, I'm, I'm going on to a little bit of a tangent here, but one way to think about that is this question of whether the elite is defined by a set of institutions and sort of belief structures and norms that people are then participating in, or whether it's defined by a set of people who are then acting on the world. And if it's defined by a set of people who are then acting on the world, then you can convince them of things and things are different. If it's defined by a set of more or less automated institutions and norms, then you convince the person to act differently. Well, suddenly they're no longer elite because you convince them to act differently because actually their status was based on their participation in particular modes of being, not, uh, not on what they were doing with that. Or, or not on, on who they are or whatever. Well, well, what if you're convincing them from uh, the same class position? Let's call it. No, like, like I'm saying, I'm saying, suppose you actually are successful in, their, in your convincing, right? You are successfully convincing this person, you know, you take these, you take some kids at Harvard who are going into McKinsey and you give them a different ideology. And, and they receive your different ideology. It's not just the problem of they're not listening. It's the problem of they're listening but can't do anything. You convince them of something different. Are they able to act? Uh, no, they're not. Um, at least this is one hypothesis. And so that's that theory of elites. Another theory of elites is that you don't need this counterfactual agency thing. What, what you're really talking about is, is society shaped by a particular central culture or not. And so one one analogy that I've come up with to um, think about this, about the distinction between this and counterfactual agency is, imagine there's a species present in a forest and that species is say, I don't know, a beaver or the, the presence or absence of a beaver in a forest and, and, and sort of, you know, a wet enough forest that the beaver can actually do something. 
does this change what happens in that ecosystem? I think the answer is clearly yes. The presence or absence of the beaver very clearly changes the nature of the ecosystem. And you can say this about all manner of species, right? There's all kinds of species that not just animals, plants, fungus, bacteria, insects, etc., that shape deeply the ecosystem that they're in. They're in some sense keystone species. Then, so there's the presence or absence of that species. But the, if, if, you know, if you tried to go and talk to the beaver and give the beaver a different nature, convince him to act differently, you're not necessarily going to have that much luck. He's kind of operating within, you know, uh, a fixed pattern. And it's, it's like, it's not the case that the thing can change its nature. So the point of this thought experiment is to separate the idea of changing the, of the ability to change the nature from the ability from, from being sort of the keystone species of the current ecosystem dynamic, translating this back into human terms, you could have a particular type of elite culture, like what we have now, for example, um, an American mandarinate of some sort, where the people are not really able to act differently because the thing is relatively fixed in what it is. Their participation is relatively predicated on their participation in a particular way. And they couldn't act differently. And yet the existence of that powerful culture shapes society to a significant degree. And if that thing wasn't there, you, you would get a very different scenario. That said, you could have the case where um, the elite is not even a keystone species, where if you removed sort of the current elite, the uh, American culture, American liberalism would regrow a new head. And this is sort of the contention against uh, conservatism, like even even the most extreme forms of conservatism, where it's like, oh, if we could only just get rid of those Democrats, but but you might say, oh, well, actually, what's what's going on here is that you all believe the same thing. Uh, you know, your relationship to each other is just that that oh, it's the other guy who happens to be filling this niche for for someone who's more powerful. And as soon as you remove that guy, someone else would fill that niche because it's actually a deeper structural aspect of the system. And so that's a third way that things could be. And so those are, these are these three ways that things could be with respect to the elites. And I think in all cases, it is warranted to call them elites, even though they're very different things. In one case, it's you have people who can actually act counterfactually different. You have, in the second case, you have people who can only do what they're doing. But uh, if that whole class were removed, the thing would be very different because there's in some sense a keystone species. And the third example is it's actually just a bunch of people kind of filling a gravity well in the general structure of society or, or filling a niche in the general structure of society. And if they were displaced, something else would move in. So those those produce like very different kind of diagnoses of the problem. In, uh, but, you know, whether you call each of them an elite or not is maybe not all that interesting. So I, I think... Like there are a couple aspects there that are not mutually exclusive. Like the niche element, I, I think is is evidently true in some sense, but it's um it's sort of a very central and important niche, right? Like to draw on your earlier sort your your earlier ecology example, kind of by their nature, the sort of niches that elites are filling in a society are the niches that essentially or you know can order and can reorder 
the entire society, the entire ecosystem. Yeah, okay. And and then the question is, do the pre- are the pressures around there shaping them or vice versa? Um, so then the question is, you use this term American mandrinate, which I think is quite good. I, I, I think that's a nice description of like what, what we're undergoing here. And one question we can ask, right, and this maybe brings us a little more t- directly to who are the American elite. In the last hundred years, did we see a significant change in the people involved? Or did we see a significant change in the norms involved or the institutions or both, right? In terms of kind of inflow from outside, there's been a little bit uh, of that. Uh, there had, you know, the, you know, there have been new families that came to the country and kind of uh, came in, but there has not been as much mobility as as people sort of like to imagine, right? A lot of the same families, even that were there fifty or eighty years ago, are, are still around today and are, and are consequential. Now, what happened more consequentially was obviously the temporal change, right? Generational change. Uh, old generations died off, new generations came in. And so that's one way that we could maybe claim that there was kind of a significant collapse in terms of the actual quality of people involved. The other one is that there was some kind of structural shift that that degraded the people involved. But somehow, you know, somehow if, if, if those people had been born into different societies uh, or, or maybe different kind of social relationships or institutions, they they would have been actually highly functional. They were just trained badly or there was a succession failure or something like this. But that gets you into a kind of very weird question, right? Because if if you could theoretically change the society, then you would already have kind of solved the elite problem. So that's really a very a thought experiment way of thinking about it. it. It's it's not something that you could actually do in that sense. So I want to kind of put that question to you then. Do you think that the American mandrinate in a healthy society would actually be tremendously functional? Or is the problem more directly linked to those staffing it? Okay, so I think there's two problems here. One, so you, you, you know, there's first of all the question of do we have the same families in charge now as we did a hundred years ago? The answer is no. Not totally. We have a num. We have certain. We have we have crossovers in families. Though. We have some yes. some some remnants. We have some remnants. You know, the Bushes are are were still around twenty years ago. Yep, Rockefellers. I mean, some of these names are still present. I wouldn't go so far as to call them powerful or even sure. But present, I mean, that's the generation aspect of this, right? No, we don't have the Rockefeller in charge. Some, some of them, I think, are are like not even present. I think a lot of the families in question simply died out, um, or or you know lost the lost the plot enough that they're no longer recognizable, even as as anything significant. So I think there's a few remnants left around, uh, by and large. There's a reason they're not around anymore. They didn't inherit, you know, their grandfather's country. It's because they, uh, you know, either don't exist or basically totally fell out. And, and you know, there were actually significant new entrants into, uh, into things now. Like, like you look, there's a lot more um, Mormons there's a lot more Catholics. There's a lot more Jews. Increasingly, we have um, South in South Asians and East Asians rising up 
in in the ranks of things. So I think I think the answer is like no, we don't strictly speaking have the same people, and I think a lot of the people who are coming in are not really elites that in the sense that the thing that in the sense that the wasp thing was, and it's it's like people are coming in with this. I don't know. They get rich. They get powerful. They don't necessarily change their fundamental culture, which is, again, as you said, culture is very sticky. It's hard, like you're kind of raised into it. And and if people are broadly speaking raised into a middle class culture and then they get rich, well, being rich doesn't make you actually a ruling class. And or even if you get politically powerful, even if you end up with institutional positions, holding office doesn't make you uh sort of culturally speaking ruling class and so there's so there's that point on the demographics then on the question of okay well could it work with different people uh no i think mandarinates are inherently flawed they are they are inherently anti-human in some sense at least as we understand them in america maybe maybe like the thing that they got out of confucius over in china in previous dynasties Maybe they had something that actually worked. It's different from what we're doing, which is this like hyper credentialism where where like you're just constantly striving to pass the next test and um, you spend most of your time studying for these fake tests. And downside risk is totally dominant in your psyche. And there's very little upside, very little agency. All you can do is stay on the path and and compete to stay on the path. And like if this is if this is the kind of ethos that you're developing with your elite education, then you know you're not gonna have a good time no matter how good the people going in are. It seems like a lot more good people go into places like Harvard than come out of them. Um, that these institutions actually corrupt people. They cut off their sharp edges. They they cut off their dreams. Um, in some cases, you know, people gain various knowledge, but a lot of a lot of the the uniqueness of people going in is not preserved or enhanced. It's it's kind of like washed out. They're turned into clones, uh, sort of these 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 Mandarin clones, and so I think. You can't get a good system with that. I think an actually good elite system is based on privilege, where you have some people who basically don't have to worry, and they are able to therefore use that position. They are trained on top of that to uh, worry on behalf of society and use that privilege to, to act in ways that other people cannot act. One way to rephrase that uh, and maybe link into your earlier comment is we have a lot more people in Harvard today whose parents dreamed of them going to Harvard rather than whose parents went to Harvard. And certainly, you know, I, I don't even know what fraction would be among those whose ancestors founded Harvard, right? Like probably very few, if any. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, like the old the old Harvard hymn, the old Harvard hymn, like something, something till the stock of the Puritans dies. Well, you know, the stock of yeah. the Puritans has it's died. Done. Yeah, 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 yeah. In fact, that verse has been removed. So, yeah. Well, and and I mean, I I think that um that probably creates a psychological change about the thing, right? If 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 Harvard has generally been the dream, right? And okay, you made it to the top of the test stack. 
and through the SATs and whatever else. And now you're there. But it is kind of not seen as it's seen as like meritocratic, right? Not birthright. You know what I mean? Um, that's that seems good in a, in a way because it's like okay, well, you got in purportedly like on your own ability rather than familial connections or something, and it's like okay, well, you know th that's a nice idea as far as it goes. But it it also actually means that you fundamentally view the institution as something to exploit maximally for your own benefit, right? Rather than actually kind of like steward over, which is in fact what we see, right? Like the whole everything from the coursework to the the like student societies are things that kind of are like are, they're there to be gamed for your own resume boosting. It's not an institution anyone takes care of. Let me take the counterpoint on on meritocracy. Um, it's, some of you have probably heard this before, but like people say things like meritocracy sounds nice or it's a good idea in theory or something like, no, it isn't. What it in fact means is is distributing is like concentrating spoils and then distributing them on the basis of like test scores or something. It doesn't make any sense. The whole thing doesn't make sense. It's it's like you're you're gonna treat these elite positions. You're gonna create these elite positions in society, and then you're gonna say, okay, you know, these are a prize to be handed out to the person who like wins at the game, and and then they can go off and do whatever with them. It's like th this is a terrible idea. It's 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 the stupidest thing I've ever heard of. I think when people, you know, where meritocracy got its kind of good name from is when it wasn't like that at all. It was the idea the idea was these are positions that we actually have to someone actually has to go and do this thing. They have to do well at it. There's an actual job to be done and we're going to pick people whoever can do the job and we're going to put them in charge. And so that ethos of meritocracy is very good for functional institutions to staff up. But that is very different from, first of all, what we have now and what gets called meritocracy now, which is more like what I described, where it's the, you know, the spoils of privilege distributed to those who win at the game. Um, an arbitrary and, and silly game. And, and, and secondly, it doesn't address the question of elites. It only addresses the question of staffing up institutions. And staffing up institutions is different from creating institutions. So creating institutions needs to be done by people with privilege because they need to be able to act without someone else's blessing or, or, or sponsorship. Thanks for listening. We've now reached the end of the first half of the podcast. The second half is available on our Patreon. You can sign up at palladiummag.com slash subscribe. It usually gets better in the second half, so you don't want to miss it. This project wouldn't be viable without your support, so we hope to see you soon.